0: hi it's jill schlesinger on this episode of the program what's behind the success of warby parker
1: if you want to create shareholder value right you have to make customers happy to make customers happy you have to hire the best and and the brightest Um, so you have to have happy employees where do employees want to work they want to work at mission driven organizations
0: welcome to the jill on money podcast we are presented by marcus by goldman sachs we've got great guests today I want to get into it quickly it's exciting Dave Gilboa and Neil Blumenthal they are co-founders and co-CEOs of Warby Parker yep that's the eyewear company that disrupted the industry by drastically lowering prices for stylish frames here's our interview with Dave and Neil
1: You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger.
0: So, Neil, what is the best career or financial decision you've made after Warby Parker?
1: After Warby Parker, um, the best decision I ever made was uh, marrying my wife, who ended up being an entrepreneur, started her own jewelry line, helped put me through business school, um, now uh, has a a line of children's apparel called Rockets of Awesome that's all direct to consumer online and you guys are a stores. power
0: couple jeez um,
1: so yeah all so right. I, it was finding the right partner probably one other story would be um, joining uh, Vision Spring the the nonprofits sort or of startup um, and and taking a risk of moving down to El Salvador to work on a pilot program i find when i'm speaking to young people sometimes they underestimate the amount of learning that you can get in An environment where you have a lot of autonomy and independence um, where there isn't a lot of structure and and you need to sort of figure out right how to have impact and I
2: use some of the skills that I learned at Vision Spring every day at Warby Parker
0: okay Dave best
2: choosing to optimize for learning early on in my career so um, after graduating from Berkeley I was a bioengineering major didn't know anything about business and um, and decided to join Bain & Company strategy consulting firm I knew that I could go there for a couple years and, and develop really meaningful skills and still kind of use a lot of the thinking and, and skill set that I developed early on. And uh, we've also hired a bunch of people out of Vain, uh since that time. And, and I think it just um, set up a, a great foundation for uh, my career, whichever direction it was gonna go next.
0: Let's just start back a little bit of your origin story. So Dave, why don't you start off and tell us kind of the beginning of what happened for this company? How did it form? where you guys were in your lives
2: sure uh, so uh, Neil and I met the first week of business school along with our two other co-founders Andy and Jeff and I'd been working in consulting and finance for a few years and realized I wanted to take that kind of do something a little more entrepreneurial something that uh, was gonna have a bigger positive impact on the world uh, I took six months off to travel between working and going to school and along the way I lost my only pair of glasses and so Damn it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, left them on a plane uh, while I was backpacking and so I showed up uh, to, to Wharton, uh, where I was getting my MBA um, as a full-time student, didn't have a, a pair of glasses, and uh, was frustrated that I was going to have to pay several hundred dollars to, to buy a new pair. The, the pair I'd lost it cost me $700, and I just bought a new iPhone for $200, and, and just the math didn't make sense to me. And so I started complaining to anyone that would listen around, um, you know, couldn't understand why glasses were, were so expensive. Andy, um, their co-founder, couldn't understand why no one was selling glasses online, and we connected uh, with Neil, who had just spent um, several years running this amazing nonprofit called Vision Spring, uh, where uh, they were producing uh, and distributing glasses uh, to people in the developing world. And um, and he had been to several manufacturing facilities and knew that there was nothing in the cost of materials or the production process that justified these high prices. And so uh, kind of the light bulbs started going off and, uh, and the four of us got together and we ended up uh, bootstrapping the business, taking uh, the money that uh, we had saved from working for a few years launching out of our apartments while we were full-time students and uh, starting to to build what became Warby Parker. And that was, uh, so we launched in early 2010, about nine and a half years ago.
0: Okay. So Neil, nonprofit, heart of gold. So thank God (laughs) there's someone with a soul in a studio. (laughs) I know you don't have a soul back there, PR lady. Uh, Okay. So talk about what drove you to attend business school coming out of the nonprofit world.
1: I felt like the the work of the nonprofit sector is equally complex um, and, and challenging as a for-profit sector, but um, often doesn't get the same sort of credibility. Um, So I felt actually that going to business school, I would get an imprimatur, especially from school like Wharton, that would open up a lot more opportunities for me. Um, And also I realized that I I loved leading organizations and managing and, and, you know, the skills that you learn at business school can, you know, help you to um, scale and lead
2: organizations in the future
0: so i understand you going to business school to get a different skill set so dave where undergrad where did you go uh,
2: so i went to berkeley i was a bioengineering major um both my parents are doctors i was 100 percent sure i was going to become a doctor so i took all the pre-med classes took the mcat um when i was getting ready to graduate uh, there were a bunch of changes in the healthcare industry hmos were taking over and um, just talking to my parents and their friends who are doctors uh, they didn't seem quite as excited to be practicing physicians and so I thought that there might be a different path where I could learn something about business and then I kind of apply those skills to hopefully help make the world better at some some point down the road
0: so it's interesting though because you know neither of you sort of came out with like I'm an entrepreneur like you know I'm sure that you get a ton of people who come to you like we want to be entrepreneurs like you but you you didn't pre-plan this like you lived your lives but you didn't micromanage each choice so I wonder how you deal with this question where people are like well I want to be like you and I want to like go to business school and do this You're unicorns what would your advice be to younger people who listen to this story or their parents who hope that they become as successful as you what's the lesson here what should they be telling their kids and what should people be thinking about
1: the best businesses solve real problems And the real problem we were trying to solve is that glasses were too expensive and the experience of shopping for glasses was suboptimal. And often you can't discover what problems you want to solve until you've actually done some work. You know, there's this perception that entrepreneurs all look like Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, dropped out of school and and launched businesses while they were a teenager or in their early 20s. And that just... Doesn't line up with the actual statistics, and the majority of people that start businesses are in uh, their late thirties and early forties.
0: And I think the average CEO right now of of all unicorns is actually like forty seven, something odd, like like shockingly higher than you would think. So, what is it about your business? when you look back on it and you you solved a problem but what were some of the things that there was no way you could have anticipated until you were in it like Dave what were like oh my god this is so much harder than we thought what were the things you didn't consider
2: yeah I mean none of us had had ever started a business before none of us um, knew how to build a website none of us came from kind of a formal design background so everything that we were doing uh, we were doing for the first time and learned a lot of painful lessons early on uh, particularly around the areas where we didn't have expertise um, like how to how to build a website most of us came from backgrounds where we had spent a lot of time in excel and powerpoint and so we're really proficient at that Uh, we didn't know how to make wireframes and so when we wanted to figure out how to design our site, uh, we designed it in PowerPoint. And we printed out a bunch of uh, PowerPoint slides and had stacks of paper. And we would walk into the <laughs> local Starbucks and offer to buy people a cup of coffee um, if they would take a few minutes. And um, and we'd put a page in front of them and say, pretend this is a homepage that you're looking on a computer screen and your hand is the mouse. Where would you click? And then they would uh, kind of point somewhere and then we'd Uh, shuffle the papers and and find the the next uh, part of the site and put that in front of them and so you know we tried to in areas that we were deficient um, try to find scrappy ways that um, we could generate learnings you know try to solve for either hire or or find the capabilities that we didn't have um, on on the team ourselves
0: you guys had four co-founders essentially and you two are here what did you do knock off the other two what's (laughs) happened to them
2: so they're still two of our closest
1: friends uh, Jeff and Andy Uh, Jeff has gone on to start Harry's the unicorn razor company that's uh, lowering the price of of razors for everybody and Andy went on to start uh, an amazing uh, venture capital fund called elephant partners why
0: didn't they join you guys are you mean are you bad bosses (laughs) What, what, what did you shut them down
1: when we So we started, while we were at business school, we each committed sort of our, our life savings into it at the time, which was about $30,000. So we started the business with $120,000, and we each committed that we were going to bust our butts um, working together until graduation. And we set up actually a vesting schedule so that way, if all four of us continued to work on it while we were at school, we would all vest and be equal owners at graduation. And the thought there was, hey, there's a million ways out. some could spend their time so if somebody wanted to stop working on the business at any point they could without feeling guilty those, those that continue with the business would um, continue to, to earn more equity at graduation Jeff actually had committed to go back to the private equity fund he was at before school because they were paying for his mm-hmm. school and Andy uh, was more always more passionate about um, uh, venture investing
0: mm-hmm. I don't know how you're passionate about that, but okay, let's talk about the money you raised. So you started bootstrapping yourself. Talk about the fundraising part of it. How hard was that? Was it comfortable? Did someone take lead? Did your private equity guys sort of be like, I know all these people, I'll hook us up. Like, how did it work?
2: We felt lucky that um, we had some savings that, you know, we weren't starting this business right out of college. Each of us had worked for a few years. We'd saved some money and and we were willing to kind of risk all of that to start this business. And we were also terrified uh, of losing other people's money, uh, whether that was our parents, mm. our friends, our professors. And so we felt much more comfortable taking all that risk ourselves. In retrospect, we we wish that uh, yeah, we'd involved uh, more of our kind of friends and family early on, but at the time, I uh, just felt like the the risks were too great. Uh, we bootstrapped the business to get to launch. So we Um, Spent about a year and a half from when we first started talking about the idea to when we actually launched the business. And And the business
0: launched in what year again? uh,
2: In February 2010.
0: And you guys were done with business school at that point, or you were still in business school? We were still in business school. We were in our second and final year. Okay, so you finished business school, and then did you go out and raise some moolah?
2: Well, so we actually um, didn't raise money for about another year and a half. Um, so we were super scrappy early on. Uh, we were able to just kind of fund uh, the business through cash flow that we were generating. That's awesome. And uh, the biggest issue that we ran into was that uh, we were growing super quickly and, and we needed more and more inventory and we were completely stocked out of inventory. We hit our first year sales targets in three weeks and uh, we had a 20,000 uh, customer waiting list. And oh my um, And to be able to fund that inventory, we realized we needed access to capital. And so we tried looking into kind of some Uh, non-dilutive options like small business loans and and getting a line of credit and found that um, that process was incredibly cumbersome and took way too long and uh, forced us to put our own uh, kind of assets and personal guarantees uh, in in place. And so um, about a year and a half uh, later, we raised our our first seed round, uh, which is a little over over $2 million, um, and tried to include a wide range of technology, fashion, Entertainment investors that could be helpful to the business as we scaled.
0: How many times have you gone out and raised money?
2: We've now done five rounds of funding. Yeah, and we've raised about three hundred million
1: dollars.
0: Oh my god, what's this company worth? Approximately? Give me a range. That's what everyone wants to know. What do you think it's worth? Come on, Neil, get on the spot. Hot light is now pouring. The dude is sweating. You can't even believe it. It's like it's like a klieg light came down on him. What do you think it's worth?
1: Probably a few billion dollars.
0: I'm sitting in a studio with billionaires. So, how does that make you feel when you say that number out loud?
1: It makes me turn red in the face. Yeah, totally- <laughs>
0: By the way, theater of the mind here with yeah. our, you like you are beat red right yeah. now. Why is that so weird for you?
1: Again, the best businesses solve real problems, and if you solve customer problems, right, you can build something really big and special. And, you know, if you were to come to our office and and see what Dave and I talk about every day, it's not, right, the capital that we've raised. It's not sort of external valuations. It's actually our net promoter score, which is a measure of customer satisfaction. It's we spend a lot of time talking about our team. Have we uh, set the appropriate org design? Are we hiring people fast enough? Mm. Are we managing performance? the way that we should Um, and that's where our mind share is 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 constantly this is
2: Jill on money
0: hey gang it's me Jill Schlesinger you know that you are listening to the pod certified financial planner CBS News business analyst host of this here podcast Jill on money and I am here to tell you about our sponsor Marcus by Goldman Sachs they're helping people achieve financial well-being with simple and transparent banking products including clarity money that's a free personal finance management app that's part of the marcus family clarity money is your ai-powered financial champion that shows you a simple view of your finances together in one place they recently launched a weekly budgeting feature that you've just got to try the app does the hard part for you and calculates your average weekly spend by category you can take that information so you can set informed budget goals based on what matters most to you you can also subscribe to budget alerts to help keep you on track and start with a clean slate every week who doesn't want that it's super easy to use and can make a task like budgeting kind of fun so go check it out Download Clarity Money through Google Play or iTunes or visit Marcus.com forward slash Clarity. And now back to our interview with Warby Parker co-founders Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa. You started online, but then you did kind of like that weird thing, which is we started as an online way to get cheaper glasses and then you open physical stores so who led that charge
1: when we launched in february 2010 we had deliberately gone out to the fashion press because here we were launching this lifestyle brand we knew that fashion and design were the most important things to the customers we were targeting right how do the glasses look on on one's face we were able to be featured in gq and vogue right the the best men's book the best uh, uh, women's book and the company just shot off like a rocket ship. We thought that we were going to have to beg our friends and our parents and our cousins to buy, you know, a couple of glasses that that first year. Uh, We hit our first year sales targets in three weeks, sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks, had a wait list of over 20,000 people. One of the things that we had built into the business was a home try on program. So if you went to warbyparker.com, you could select five frames um, and you still can today. We ship you them without a prescription. Prescription. you select what frame you want at that point we put in the prescription and, and send you a new pair of, of glasses we had come up with the idea of the home try on program because in uh, the work that we were doing pre-launch we kept getting feedback from our friends it's like hey I don't know if I would buy glasses online mm-hmm. I don't want to touch and feel them I want to see how they look on my face mm-hmm. um, so we thought that you know a home try on would get over that hurdle the other thing is that we were very committed to customer service and were inspired by you know some of the policies of zappos for example which always had free shipping and free returns um, and we had learned at that point in time that zappos had like 40 percent return rates and we would never have a viable business with a custom product like mm. glasses if we had uh, return rates that high because you basically if someone returns a pair of glasses you have to trash the the lenses so we had this home program. And within 48 hours of launch, we ran out of inventory because so many people had ordered their home try-ons. And then a funny thing happened where people heard that we were in Philadelphia because we were going to Wharton and they said, hey, can we come to your office to try on glasses? Like we can't do a home try-on because you're stocked out, but can we at least come into your office? And we're like, um, you can come to our apartment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, come to our apartment in South Philly. We'll go to the Bullmore and uh, have fun after that. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Literally, we said, ah, you know, what the hell? That's, uh, w- we had five people come in. We wanted to limit it to, to five people, too. So if this was such an awkward experience, that we would only destroy the brand's reputation with, with five people.
2: I think Philadelphia had the second highest murder rate in the country at the time. And we <laughs> yeah. were also inviting all, yeah, all these strangers on into on our in. homes. Yeah. Right, exactly. You're- uh, we, you know, moved the dining
1: room table, put the glasses across it, moved a mirror. Um, we took out our laptops. So if people selected a pair of glasses, they would literally check out on our website. And the first five people came in. Um, they were definitely confused because um, they saw us there. They saw some of the first folks that we hired scrunched on our couch, <laughs> typing away <laughs> processing orders and responding to to customer emails. But it was uh, this pretty special experience because how often do you get to peek behind the curtain uh, Mm -hmm. of a startup and we remember vividly that there was one person who was in scrubs they were a resident at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania Uh, they bought a pair of glasses and then literally over the next week we saw 15 more orders come in with email addresses from the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania so we thought like oh like this is a great way to also acquire new, new absolutely customers.
0: that is so cool so how many physical outlets do you have 90 100 something like that
1: uh, 115
0: 115 do you have like a site location person who does all that work for you guys
1: uh, we have a real estate team we also um, often leverage our data science team the, the beauty of being uh, an e-commerce company is that we know where our customers are. So what was interesting is, um, right, we started selling out of our apartment. Um, then when we moved into a proper office, after graduation, we moved um, uh, back to New York. Uh, we deliberately um, moved into an office that was in Union Square, so a place with good access, with, with public transportation. It was a loft space with southern-facing windows, with good light. We allocated about a third of the office to be a showroom a store um, and we just started selling lots of glasses. Um, And eventually we moved our office to Soho. We were on track to do over $3 million of sales out of our office. Mm. So we figured if we're doing this in an office in Soho, what if we just open up a store nearby? We'll probably do at least that. And then we also built uh, a mobile store. We bought an old yellow school bus. We ripped out all the the benching and the chairs. Uh, We put in oak shelving and we went to um, about 15 cities. And in each city we were in about three locations. Um, So we knew which intersections performed well. So we had basically a roadmap of where to open up stores. We married that with uh, some of our customer data. And we now have sort of a model where we can punch in. Any address in the US and get a a sales range with a confidence interval.
0: Dave, you guys are co CEOs, but you obviously have different areas of responsibility. So, how does it break down between the two of you?
2: Uh, We really split up the company. I think each of us have seven or eight direct reports, um, operates more functionally as a Venn diagram where Mm Yeah, example, physical retail stores report into Neil, uh, but I'm on a real estate committee and so it's still involved in kind of um, looking at every new store that we're opening and technology reports into me. But if we're making any big tech decision, Neil is providing as much input as I am into those decisions. And so it allows us to divide and conquer on kind of day-to-day things, uh, but then I think we get the benefit of having kind of two brains instead of one for major decisions across the business
0: you come of age in a different time where it seems to me that more of your cohorts are interested in community as well as your people who work for you and also making sure the company does well I wonder from your perspective I know you started with um, you came from the nonprofit world You, you started with this premise about giving away a pair of glasses so can you talk a little bit about the journey of how that really was sort of one of your leading messaging points now you still do it but it doesn't it doesn't seem to be front and center
1: yeah so uh, when we were starting the business uh, we often would discuss hey what's gonna keep us excited to go to work every single morning and not roll over and hit the snooze button and it was about having you know big positive impact and we thought well uh, what's one way to do that well there's hundreds of millions of people on the planet that don't have glasses. And how are we failing as a species um, when a product and technology that's been around 800 years is not widely available to everybody. So even though we thought it was an inherent good to bring down the price of glasses from $500 to $95, right, we want to serve those hundreds of millions of people that couldn't afford $95. So we first thought, oh, well, why don't we commit a percent of revenue or profits? We thought, hey, at the end of the day, that is good and positive, but the outcome that we're looking for is glasses on people's faces so that way They can, you know, fulfill their potential at work, at school. And we also thought if for some reason we weren't running the company, like a percent of revenue, a percent of profits could maybe be manipulated a little bit. So we want to make a bold commitment that was also tied to the brand to give away a pair for every pair that we've sold. Uh, We've now distributed over 5 million pairs of glasses to people around the world and in in the United States. That's uh, sort of, what we probably talk most about from a social mission perspective, Mm -hmm. uh, but we try and run the business uh, by considering all stakeholders. So how does a decision impact our customers, our employees, uh, the environment, the community uh, at large? And we also think that that's not mutually exclusive with creating shareholder value. Right. 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 If you want to create shareholder value, right, you have to make customers happy. To make customers happy, you have to uh, hire the best and And the brightest Um, so you have to have happy employees where do employees want to work they want to work at mission driven organizations
0: it's interesting to me that you don't have this growth at any cost mindset what do you want to happen next what are areas that you're not involved in now in this business that you are is on your wish list what what do you want to happen
1: so there are a few things that we're really excited about one is that we just launched our own brand of contact Mm -hmm. lenses um, Scout as we think about what are adjacencies to prescription glasses and sunglasses that can help us provide a more holistic customer experience. Um, it's contact lenses, it's eye exams. Right, We have uh, well over a hundred stores at this point, pretty much all of our new stores. We've been building exam suites and pre-screening rooms. And we've, This year we'll have tripled the number of optometrists that we have on staff. And if you look at eye exams and contact lenses, that's over an eleven billion dollar uh, total addressable market in, in the U.S. So it's a massive opportunity for us financially, but more importantly, is that this allows us to provide just uh, better customer experiences.
0: When I walked into the store, I saw people that had iPads, and I saw a lot of people in there, and I saw the exams that were happening, and it seemed very—it was bustling. The other thing I saw in the store were books. How did this come about? When did you start putting books in your physical stories? Or was that always the case?
2: Yeah, so it's um really been a core part of the brand identity uh, since day one. Um, there's uh, such a tie between glasses and reading and learning. And the name Warby Parker actually comes um, from two early Jack Kerouac uh, characters. So it took us six months to come up with a name that uh, we all really liked. Um, At the time we were launching the business, there were some other sites that were selling glasses online. They had names like (laughs) $39glasses.com and iBuyDirect.com. And uh, we wanted a proper name to uh, the fact that we were launching a fashion brand and doing something different. And... Uh, we didn't think Gilboa Blumenthal really rolled off the doesn't, tongue. It that doesn't. <laughs> I, mean, I
0: mean, it works for your marriage, but otherwise, no. <laughs>
2: um, and so we, we spent a lot of time talking about artists or authors that um, represented the brand ideals that we were trying to create, including the Beat Generation writers and Jack Kerouac. And coincidentally, uh, the New York Public Library had an exhibit on Kerouac's private journals. And so went up to that exhibit and he'd written about uh, these characters with uh, really interesting names and uh, the two that jumped out were Warby Pepper and Zag Parker um, and we loved those names and decided to combine the two and, and, and make it our own um, and since that uh, time as we were kind of building out uh, the brand identity and architecture um, have really incorporated literature and, and, and books into kind of every aspect of, I would of like the brand to,
0: I want to point out what you're missing in those stores in terms of a book A financial book, and you know what? Miraculously, I've written one. So I just want to pitch myself right here. I've got the I've got the decision makers here. So if you would like a copy of the dumb things smart people do with their money in your actual Warby Parker physical locations, I would be delighted to do something around that. I just want to put it out there. Yeah, you know what? He's like, why am I in the studio right now? Can this end anytime soon? Neil, what's your worst financial decision? What did you do? Did you like buy something at the top or do something dopey?
1: Uh, when I was eight years old, I bought a food dehydrator thinking that I was going to sell dried fruits on the streets of New York, which oh, That's didn't like really a very Jewish
0: out. thing to do. I just want to point that out. Like, oh, yeah, like everyone needs apricots, <laughs> don't they? Not at a shiva, but in every day, that's when you need it. What about you, Dave?
2: Um, yeah, so I, I went to Berkeley. And so, you know, right in the heart of uh, Silicon Valley, and I, I was a freshman in, in 1999, so uh, kind of... It showed up and it seemed like everyone uh, that was investing in anything was just printing money and um, set up a E-Trade account and I didn't really have any money and but it was pretty easy to kind of set up a margin um, account where I could just borrow money and I didn't really understand um, that probably would have to pay that back if things didn't work out. And then uh, the bubble burst and uh, quickly realized that um, I probably shouldn't be investing things I had no idea what, what the companies actually did. You're listening to Jill on Money.
0: Okay, it's time for the Marcus Minute. We're presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. In the hot seat today, co-founders, co-CEOs of Warby Parker, Dave Gilboa, and Neil Blumenthal. Now, these are going to be very short answers. You ready to play? We'll do Let's just do this. um, Let's go back and forth, okay? Neil, what's one word to describe your relationship with money? Healthy? Dave, here's a new question. What's always worth spending money on?
2: Uh, friends and family
0: Neil what's the dumbest thing you've spent money on besides your freeze-dried fruit machine (laughs)
2: Um,
1: a weighted jump rope and I've had it now for 20 years anytime I move I carry it with me thinking that I'm going to start working (laughs) out with it Um, and Rachel my wife makes fun of me for it every day
0: Dave how much do you spend on a haircut
1: it's
0: $45 It's your last day on earth. You both get to answer this question. It's your last day on earth. You've got a hundred bucks in your pocket. What's your last meal? Neil. Uh, Ice cream. Dave. Burrito. Done. You see, you've survived. Dave Gilboa, Neil Blumenthal, (laughs) co-founders and co-CEOs of Warby Parker. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks to co founder and co CEOs Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa of Warby Parker. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes we throw in a bonus episode as well. If you want to make sure to catch every single episode, just subscribe to us. You can do that anywhere Apple, Stitcher, radio.com, Google Play, wherever you found this podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. Mark says it makes a difference. I don't understand this, so just do it. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Telercio is our executive producer extraordinaire. We're distributed by Cadence 13. The show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.